Hello and welcome to these audio excerpts from the Westwick PHN COVID-19 Pandemic Response Series Project ECHO. This session was recorded on Thursday the 21st of May 7.30am and this is part three of our paediatric focus. In this session we're rejoined by Associate Professor Deborah Friedman to provide an infectious disease update and focus on uh, return to school and how this might impact uh, upon parents of and teachers are concerned about immunosuppression and we're joined by Dr Kate McCluskey, a paediatrician from Bowen Health and Wuthering Aboriginal Cooperative to discuss some of the issues facing where health and education might intersect. Thank you for listening to these audio excerpts and join us again next week at Project Echo. You can register via the Westwick PHN. So we really are moving into our third month since the pandemic was declared. Restrictions are being relaxed since kids are back to school. There's still a lot of uncertainty about what lies ahead, not only for our community in regards to potential outbreaks and clusters, but how to advise families about the return to school. For some families, a transition into remote learning has been challenging and remains challenging, while others going back might bring another set of issues. So here we are at this time to discuss family stress, complex issues in kids and um, the education and health interface. I'd like to hand over to Associate Professor Deb Freeman to begin with the uh, Infectious Diseases Update. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. Um, so um, the update, May 21st, 2020. There's um, over 7,000 cases in Australia now, 7,079 to be precise, and 100 deaths. Just to put that into sort of perspective for those of us over the age of 50, um, there's only been three deaths under the age of 60 in Australia. All of, all of the other deaths have been above the age of 60. Um, in, there's a, been somewhere between about 10 to 20 cases per day um, in the entire country and essentially no more than 10 per day in any one state, although that's fluctuated a little bit with some of the clusters. In Victoria, we've just got, we've got just over 1,500 cases with ongoing clusters in Cedar Meats that has more than 100 cases, some of the McDonald's um, restaurants that you'd heard about, and now an aged care centre called Linden Aged Care. 0.4% um, of tests that are being performed in Victoria are positive and 10% of cases have an unknown source. The doubling time for infection is now 52 days. So this is, despite having some clusters, still the numbers, of, the numbers that are increasing are a very small increase. If we look at our region, there's been a small increase in numbers in Ararat, Ballarat and Geelong, and all other areas have stayed the same. One thing to mention is that some of those increase in numbers, especially in Geelong, have been what we determined to be false positives. So they've been retested and have tested negative. But from a health department point of view, they still keep them as positive. The other thing you'll notice if you look at the epidemiology by the state, they um, periodically reclassify cases. So one day you might have one that's attributable to Geelong and then it might be switched to Melbourne because it's based on your address, not based on where you got tested. Um, Beyond the blitz, there's a small amount of asymptomatic testing ongoing as directed by the Department of Health. So the most recent example of that late last week was a directive that we got to test some school teachers and that was targeted over about a four-day period. But largely most of the screening is symptomatic. So that's the sort of general update. Um, I wanted to talk now about immunosuppressed patients and how 
how they fit into the pandemic. Um, initial data from China at the beginning of the pandemic showed that there was a higher mortality in patients with lung cancer, so an active malignancy, but it also showed higher mortality in patients that have underlying comorbidities like diabetes or chronic lung disease. It's known that serious infection risk increases along with disease activity for inflammatory disorders. So for conditions such as perhaps rheumatoid arthritis, um, at baseline, patients have about a two to fourfold higher risk of any infection when they have an underlying autoimmune condition. Um, this is based on a combination of both the disease activity, some immune system impairment, and then both the therapy for disease, or, or largely the therapy for disease, specifically corticosteroids. The use of disease-modifying agents like methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine in the absence of steroids doesn't increase infection risk, but the use of biological disease-modifying agents does increase the risk slightly when compared with methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine. Some of the um, severe respiratory complications that can be caused by previous coronaviruses, so the initial SARS and also MERS-CoV, um, there was no increased mortality reported in patients who were organ transplant recipients or patients with autoimmune diseases. Now, keeping in mind that those were much smaller outbreaks and the total numbers were so much smaller than what we have now. So it could be that we just didn't have the data. Um, but we know data from previous flu seasons, especially in Italy, where they looked at patients on biological disease-modifying agents. They were very minimally overrepresented in the flu numbers. Um, and they noticed that with um, TNF, so tumor necrosis factor blockers like infliximab or etanercept, that there wasn't thought to be a specifically increased risk of flu. So during COVID-19, what do we know now? There were a lot of questions asked of us in March and we simply didn't have any data on which to base any answers. Now there is some data. So there was a survey performed in Lombardy in Italy on patients with sort of chronic arthritis and other autoimmune conditions that were on biological um, disease-modifying agents. Um, and there were 320 of those patients and four of them developed coronavirus-19 and four of them had a condition that was suspicious of it but never diagnosed. That was not higher than the general population. And those that did develop COVID-19 temporarily withdrew their disease-modifying agents that had good outcomes. So they didn't notice any increased death rate compared to the general population. So the conclusion that they came to was that patients who are immunosuppressed need to be extra vigilant and have close follow-up. There was another paper, um, about 700 patients that were admitted for severe COVID-19 infection, which was at a referral centre, um, and that was last month. And there was that they didn't notice any increased in poor outcomes in that group. There are several case reports that are coming out now of successful recovery from COVID-19 in transplant patients and also multiple sclerosis patients on disease-modifying agents. But there's no cohort study, no large group. Um, but the thought is that it's important to avoid unjustifiable withdrawal of disease-modifying agents because what that's going to lead to is an increase in relapse. It's going to lead to an increase in activity of the underlying disease and that will probably be worse for infection risk. 
There's also some hypothetical and case report evidence that some biologic agents may improve the outcome. Um, these agents include some of the monoclonal antibodies. Um, you, some of you may have heard of tocilizumab. So it had been used experimentally overseas in some severe cases of coronavirus. Once again, no randomised controlled trial. But what we know is that agents like tocilizumab target um, interleukin-6, and so it does dampen down the immune response. Um, so I kind of, I just wanted to, that's sort of what I wanted to say about immunosuppressed patients in general. And I guess the sort of underpinning of that would be that in an area of low prevalence of coronavirus, which is what we are in Australia, I think sort of prophylactic withdrawal of agents that are keeping disease controlled is, is, um, is not a good idea. Um, I will say um, corticosteroids increase the risk of bad outcomes and there's some data for that. So cortico high corticosteroids still place patients at risk, but we still have a very low prevalence of infection in the country. What about immunosuppressed parents of children as children go back to school? So I think it depends on the type of immunosuppression. Um, it's unclear whether or not they'd be at any increased risk of COVID-19 than they would be for seasonal influenza. But with the, once again, with the very low community prevalence of COVID-19, either excluding their children from school doesn't seem founded, but they should take extra precautions um, in terms of their interactions with other, other people and they should still be practising social distancing and um, good hand hygiene through this pandemic. Um, I wanted to touch on a new paper that just came out last week about the use of saliva in Thailand where they looked at the use of saliva for testing and they looked at 200 paired samples. So they did, they used nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swab as well as testing saliva. They basically, it, look, it, it overall came out pretty well. The sensitivity of using saliva was 84% and the specificity was nearly 99%. While the numbers are small in this study, they, um, the saliva missed three cases that the nasopharyngeal swab did find. But overall, the tests agreed. So the agreement between saliva and the nasopharyngeal swab was nearly 98%. Um, there were a few questions that I wanted to touch on that had been sent in. Um, we've still received... Um, more communication about the availability of prioritised laboratory testing for disabled and other vulnerable people in the community. As you all know, there is a mobile testing unit for people in aged care. Um, there is a meeting going on today at Bowen Health to discuss whether or not um, the mobile testing unit could be extended. And they're planning a forum to really discuss all of the logistics around this and the occupational health and safety issues. But what I have been told yesterday evening is that for people who are disabled living in community care, what they can state right now is that although the mobile testing has not been determined whether or not that could go into other centres, um, the testing can certainly be prioritised at the laboratory that we're using at the hospital. Um, I believe that Jeff Urquhart is working on a communication, and I'm not sure if that's come out yet, but that's, this is sort of on the cards um, Simon Benison asked a question yesterday about whether or not the severity of infection was thought to be due to the amount of virus that you were exposed to. 
the answer to that is that the severity of infection isn't specifically due to the amount that you're exposed to, but probably more to the host immune response to exposure. Wearing a mask, so a surgical mask, but not a P2 mask, will reduce exposure to droplet particles. Um, and we know that mask wearing reduces acquisition of infection by droplet spread. But the issue is under which circumstances would you actually wear a mask? And based on our previous discussions, logic dictates that it should be when you are assessing patients with a respiratory tract infection. Um, there was another question about, patient, about people who are self-isolating while um, awaiting test results. This has been an enormous problem since the blitz. People are waiting for over prolonged periods of time for their results. Um, they do still need to stay in isolation while awaiting results. Um, however, there'd been a little bit of mixed communication about what happens to their household contacts. So I, I guess to start off with that, if that case is a suspected case, their household contacts are not supposed to be isolating unless that person is confirmed as a case. Obviously, that underpins the importance of a better turnaround time for testing, but there has never been a mandate for all household contacts to isolate. It is different if household contacts are symptomatic, in which case they should be isolating and getting tested. Um, that's all I wanted to say, and I'm happy to respond to questions that are put up in the chat. Thanks very much. Thank you, Deb. Okay, great. And we'll come back for Deb's um, rapid questions at the end, so do please put them up in the chat. So next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Kate McCloskey to discuss uh, vulnerable families and children as we transition back to school. Hi, everybody. I'm just trying to share my screen. A copy of the slides is made available to participants who've registered. As we know, there's sort of several impacts of COVID on children and young people. And initially, we've been focusing mainly on infection for children and young people. And um, at this stage, it looks like mostly children have been escaping the high level of infection. However, there has been some um, evidence coming out of overseas, from overseas of a Kawasaki-like illness in children and young people that we're keeping an eye on, and, but still in low proportions compared to with adults. So what I'm starting to see very much as a paediatrician with my patients is jumping straight to the fourth wave of um, the psychological and mental health impacts. And I think as GPs, um, this is going to be something that really spikes for you with the return to school. So just to give us an idea of what happened pre-COVID, if you look in Australia, the number of children in out-of-home care per 1,000 um, children is steadily increasing. So in Victoria um, in 2017, it was 7.5 children um, in out-of-home care. Furthermore, one in six children are considered vulnerable on one or more domains of the Australian Early Developmental Census. And many of my patients that I would have liked to be continuing to go to school, I had been unable to get to school um, a lot with discussions with those school principals because there was a huge variation in what was considered vulnerability. And this has led for many of my patients to be a discussion with both DHS and, and with schools. And the Department of Education have taken a stand where, you know, to protect their schools and to follow the directive that a vulnerable child needs to be somebody involved with the Department of Education, a socially vulnerable child. Whereas when you call the Department of Health and Human Services, 
they're very clear that not all children that are vulnerable need to be at the reportable level. And certainly some of my families have slowly moved from just hanging in there to very close to reportable. And I'm very glad that they're going back to school in a week. Prior to this, we know that a lot of that's for primary school um, in particular, but we know that that transition to high school pre-COVID, children become less engaged with school. So if you look at the number of days missed in primary school, it's much fewer to, in, like, say, comparing year four to year nine. And I find quite unbelievably, so the percentage of um, children that are missing more than 30 days of school um, in our area, so in the Balan area, is in 2016 was 14%. And actually in year nine, 22% um, on the most recent data from 2018, 22% of government school students were chronically absent. And so that's pre-COVID. And underneath that 22% of chronically absent students, there is another large percentage of students that are just hanging in there, that their engagement is just there. So I think one of the significant complications of COVID is that ongoing isolation. So even less school engagement. Um, so not only can the home environment be put under increased stress, so through unemployment, financial stress of the families, there's been a, there'll be a group that's significant inequity with schooling from homes. So there'll be a group of children that have not been receiving homeschooling. So these might be, um, I certainly know from my immigrant health clinic, most of my refugee families have been unable to support their children with homeschooling because um, a lot of them, English is not their first language, but in addition, um, some of the families from the Karen and Karen families and the Afghani women, for example, are not literate in their first language. Children with their, where their parents have low levels of education, I think there's a real unrecognised degree of illiteracy in our parents. And so, and also just access to good internet connection. Has, so, and all of that will also increase the the level of disengagement when children are returning to school. If they feel that they've missed several months of class and are even further behind, it's going to be a real problem. Then an increasing social anxiety. So many of the children that I see, and it's very much a tip of the iceberg that I'm concerned about with returning to school, are those kids who already have social anxiety or um, are poorly engaged. So some of these kids may have underlying things like um, autism or a formalized anxiety disorder and they've really enjoyed schooling from home um, and that transition a lot of work had been put in place in terms of being able to support them in their transition to school um, and now they've had a long gap without that and the families are constantly reporting to me that they're very concerned about how that transition back to school will happen. But underlying that, if we think back to that, you know, 22% of people who are already chronically absent from school, I'm not seeing the majority of those children. Paediatricians don't see them because that requires a referral and an engaged family and people to have picked up on this. You guys will be seeing them and I suspect that a lot, that number will significantly increase and become very clear over the next month. I guess Bianca asked me what I would do when I when I have a some when I have somebody who is at that risk of school refusal, and I guess they tend for me they fall into two categories. If I am seeing them at the start of their school refusal journey, then actually I think we've got some really good opportunities to get that happening. So it's focusing on engagement, and for me, it's the schools have a plan of short days to start. 
a lot of the time it's a discussion with the family around the fact um, parents often want them there for maths and English. My biggest thing is if they actually have a single subject that they enjoy, make sure they get for that, that subject. Um, thinking about whether recess and lunch is something that will actually help their engagement and that will very much depend on why the child is school refusing. Um, I often find that a sort of a band-aid period of an anti-anxiety medication like fluoxetine is actually required to get them back to school um, with the hope to then withdraw that once they're back at school. There's some really good programs that the schools run, such as the Navigator program, but I find that the parents need to be motivated. Parents, um, families where this child is, it's reliant on the child to get themselves to school, that's very tricky. My second group are the kids where actually by the time they're seeing me, their school absence for over two years. And I think that then it can be not about returning to school, but about looking at alternate um, types of education. But certainly I think we'll be in a pit here where there'll be, we'll be early. There'll be a group of kids that will start to not engage early. And I think we have an opportunity to jump in and try and make sure we proactively help with that engagement. And I guess the one advantage is, is that everybody is going to be in a school returning situation and feeling like this. All schools will probably have engagement things in place that will also also help in these high-risk and vulnerable kids. That's really all I wanted to say about this particular group. And I think that, uh, you know, these, it will be higher still in the Indigenous populations. I'm certainly in my Wetheron clinic. It has been flagged repeatedly by families. And as I said, I think the immigrant health kids will go back to school, but they will have had a big gap of missing actual learning. So it's that combination of inequity of homeschooling. Thank you, Kate. Great. So at the beginning, we had a quiz. And so we asked the question of what what health issues have been uh, common, what's been presenting to your clinic during this time. So lots of anxiety about returning to school, school refusal, sleep issues, newer escalating behavioural issues, separation, anxiety, fears about COVID in kids has been the most common, um, somatic issues, other other, I'd be keen, pop in the chat, what's, what are some of the other things that um, you've been seeing as um, childhood um, responses to the pandemic? How have you been addressing mental health and behavioural issues? A lot of, going back to a lot of face-to-face, -face, fantastic, great. And that's certainly been a theme of our conversations over the last few weeks of the importance of bringing um, kids and families in and um, the main presenting issues being mental health issues in parents, alcohol and other drugs, fears about the kids' fears, Parents' fears, we are seeing family conflict and violence and, um, yeah, past trauma resurfacing. So these things are very much pressing on us at this time. We now moved into our interactive section of the Project ECHO, which isn't available, but I'll finish with Kate Graham's Health Pathways Review and a message from Special Projects Director at the PHN, Matt Dixon. So... Um what I wanted to do is I've got some really messy slides here just to prove the messiness of this whole environment. This is really sort of stepping back to last week and the week before when we were talking about sort of how we actually refer in for testing collection of specimens. So I'll just go to the next slide as well. These are two slides from the DHHS where they're trying to sort of map out what we're meant to be doing in general practice. And I just really wanted to flag why it's difficult for us. And, um, so this sort of flags how people can come in. They can either sort of come into us, they can phone in via general practice clinics, they can self-refer to testing clinics, they can call hotlines, they can be asymptomatic testing if they've come in through the DHHS testing previously. 
Um, but all this is a mess. And what I wanted to share with you next is what may make a bit more sense and how we can actually help you with the Health Pathways referrals. So this is our referral page, and I just wanted to familiarise you guys with it in case you haven't seen it before. We've got the listings down, which sort of breaks up into emergency departments, hospital-based triage, hospital-based testing and treatment clinics, and then the community-based services. Some services will be listed in a couple of spaces. So if you're looking for something in particular, um, you will find it in whichever area you need. And I'll just go on to the next slide because I'll just show the drop down. Um, because in each area, it goes through the regional areas. So you've got your Ballarat, Grampians, Geelong Otway, Horsham, Wimmera. You've got um, the Warrnambool um, South Coast kind of area as well um, in other regions, um, depending on what services are there. But really importantly, in each of the drop downs, what you're going to get is the service specific criteria and then the information that the referrer needs. So who you need, to, who's going to be accepted at each of the clinics, um, whether you need to make an appointment because some places need an appointment, some places don't, um, some places will have age restrictions, some places will walk up. Um, so this will also have the opening hours um, and age restrictions. Um, so if, you, if any of you guys run any clinics um, and you change anything, let us know as well because we want to keep this as up to date as possible. Other new things from our Health Pathways perspective, we've now got um, a community support page um, which has mental health support, um, domestic violence, other community support, and you'll see the um, sort of support in isolation has now been taken out of the referral page and popped onto there if you're looking for it. Um, and also not to forget our paediatric COVID pathway, um, which has been up there. Um, it was I'm the first sorry, one. have we lost Kate's um, share? I'm now seeing... No, um, that's fine. I'm done with it. Oh, that's yep. great. That was, that was the last of it. So, um, yep, we're, yeah, our paediatric pathway on COVID was the first in Australia. So it's a really good quality one. Um, if you're looking for information related to peds, we've, uh, we keep that updated as well in collaboration with um, Melbourne Health Pathways. Thanks very much, Bianca, and uh, good morning, everyone. Just very quickly, I just want to let you know that... Um, Horsham has a uh, Department of Health Commonwealth-funded GP respiratory clinic opening probably tomorrow, possibly Monday. And I believe that um, it's, we're very close to having a signed contract uh, for a clinic in Warrnambool that'll be getting going quite soon. Uh, I've just put a little pitch in there for the GP uh, community of practice. Have a look at that. That could be a good um, source of support uh, during the pandemic for GPs. Thank you very much and uh, goodbye. Thanks, everyone.